Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Alma Rachel Heckman. She is the Neufeld Levin Chair of Holocaust Studies and Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Today, we will be in dialogue regarding her newly published book, The Sultan's Communists, Moroccan Jews and the Politics of Belonging, published in Stanford, California, by Stanford University Press, 2021. Alma, it's my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much. It's my honor to be to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed yeah. the scholar you'd become as an adult? Well, I have to say I wasn't very creative in my career choice. I grew up as a faculty brat. Um, so mm. my father is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. Um, my mother was a sociologist. So I kind of grew up in academia. Um, I, I liked the lifestyle it afforded. And my brother and I were always encouraged to pursue different academic um, interests. That, that struck us. So my brother became a physics professor and I became a history professor. Um, so we weren't, neither of us were that creative. Um, I'm from Chicago originally. Um, and I've been living in California now for over 10 years, which is a little surprising. Um, but that's a little bit about my background. There are many people you think in your acknowledgments and your prefatory remarks in the book would you like to express gratitude to anyone publicly? Oh, that so that's a tricky thing. Um, I would like to express my public thanks to everybody I also thanked in the acknowledgments, which is a very, very long list. Uh, but I guess to some of my primary mentors, um, Fran Molino, who was my college mentor in undergrad, and to Sarah Abrevinestein, who is my PhD advisor at UCLA. Um, and to Margot Irvin at Stanford University Press for her help in shepherding the book along. Thank you. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Yeah, so it follows a few different Moroccan Jewish communists um, and their lives as it maps onto different stages of Moroccan Jewish history, mostly over the course of the 20th century. Um, so I start with this character named Leon Bene Sultan, who was an Algerian Jew who wound up in Morocco, who founded a law practice in Morocco and founded the first iteration of the Moroccan Communist Party. And his chapter sort of covers the interwar period from 
basically the the heyday of organizing in the 1930s until the start of the Second World War. Um, and then I follow different characters like Edmond Amran and Lale, who is one of um, Morocco's most prolific and famous writers, but he also happened to be deeply involved in the Moroccan Communist Party. So I talk about his leadership in the party, um, Simon Levy, who I knew personally, I was fortunate enough to know personally, and who inspired the whole project a long time ago. Um, so follow his career in politics and academia, um, Sion Astidon, who was a very, who still is a very militant left-wing anti-Zionist activist in Morocco. Um, so it follows these few characters and the main themes, uh, it's in the title, right? The, the politics of belonging, different Jewish ways of asserting belonging to the Moroccan nation. Um, and for the people that I study, they belong through the Communist Party. They sought to belong to a future independent Morocco um, under the auspices of the Communist Party. They were a minority of a minority, I should say. Most Moroccan Jews were not part of the Communist Party. Um, maybe it's well known to listeners that most Moroccan Jews left in the 1950s and 1960s. Most of them went to Israel. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they identified with Zionism as a political movement. Um, there are lots of reasons one would move to Israel um, that don't have to do with ideology. But um, the people that I study in the book are a minority of a minority, but they still shed light on the bigger political trajectories in Morocco um, among Jews and on the wider scale nationally for Morocco. What were relations like between Moroccan Jewish Marxists and the traditional or mainstream Jewish community or communities in Morocco? Yeah, most Moroccan Jews wanted nothing to do with uh, leftist uh, Marxist Jews, mo especially during the colonial period. Um, Jewish involvement in overt national liberation politics was very frowned upon by the majority Jewish community. It wasn't until fairly late in the struggle for national independence that most Jews um, came out in favor of the end of French and Spanish colonization. And that has to do with a few things. One was being a minority and fearful of one's future place in a newly independent Morocco. Um, but I mean, even when I just started doing this project, I remember back in 2010, when I was in Morocco asking about uh, some of these Moroccan Jewish leftists and about people's different participation in political movements, a lot of the Jews I spoke to asked why I was interested in these people. They were such a minority. They don't tell the whole story of Moroccan Jewish life. Um, they really insisted on their distance from these figures. And that's because they potentially represented political liabilities. Um, the idea would be that one of them, if one Moroccan Jewish Marxist or leftist more broadly did something overtly political, it could reflect poorly on the broader Jewish community. Um, and there was a real fear of being politically out there and being that politically fragile. How much, if at all, did Jewish identity, tradition, and literacy play in the worldviews of Moroccan Jewish Marxists? That depends on the person. Um, so for someone like Simon Levy, who ended up founding a Jewish museum in Casablanca toward the end of his life, um, Jewishness 
and Moroccanness were sort of co-constitutive in his life. He couldn't envision one without the other. His Jewishness informed his Moroccanness, and his Moroccanness informed his Jewishness. And he saw Jewishness as being an, an intrinsic part of the Moroccan nation. And he grew up with a fairly traditional religious education um, before attending university in Paris and then coming back to Morocco to work as a teacher. Um, so he saw his work politically as very much bound up with his Jewishness um, and as part of his duty to the wider Jewish community. Um, people like Abraham Serpati, who is probably the most famous figure that I write about, um, he had a bit of a more of a distance. He also grew up in a sort of traditionally Jewish space, Jewish spaces in Morocco, um, but he had much more of a distance from the Jewish community. He didn't dedicate his life's work to bridging Jewishness and Moroccanness in the way that someone like Simon Levy did. Someone like Edmond Amrad and Lale, um, in his novels that are, many of them are semi-autobiographical, he circles constantly around the question of his Jewishness or Jew the Jewish uprooting from Morocco in the 1950s and 1960s. And as that connects to political activism, I can't speak to how he thought about it while he was involved in the Communist Party. Most of what I know about Edmond Amrad and Lale comes from his writings and much later. Um, but he, at least later in his life with under, as a, an author, was very interested in Jewishness. Um, someone like Leon René Sultan, I'm still very curious about. I don't have a lot of information about him personally. Um, I, I have a lot of things about his activities, but not about his sort of inner life. So I don't really know what his relationship to Jewishness or Judaism was like so much um, other than he was from Algeria and because he was from a northern part of Algeria had French citizenship um, and that produces its own complicated relationships to to Jewishness in North Africa. How does your research recontextualize the Moroccan independence movement? So most histories of Morocco in the 20th century focus on the Istiklal party which means independence in Arabic um, this was the mainstream National Liberation Party of Morocco. There were plenty of other political parties that were involved in national independence in Morocco, among them the Communist Party. And so my book helps reconfigure that understanding, or it helps nuance at least, that understanding of different political parties and their involvement in Moroccan independence. And it also... Um, bridges the time period after Moroccan independence. A lot of books on Morocco until the present have really stopped their investigations at around 1956, which is when Morocco got its independence. Um, or in Jewish history, it start, stopped around 1948 even, which is the year the State of Israel was established. Um, my book extends those time periods and goes into the 1990s even. Um, so it extends the story of Moroccan Jewish life um, in the in the sense that many people think the story of Moroccan Jewish history ends with the big migrations of the 1950s and 1960s. But as I show in my book, it was a minority and a very reduced minority, but Jewish life still continued on in Morocco after these big watershed moments. 
Um, and it still continues on till today. What new insights does your research offer regarding the years of lead? So the years of lead refers to a period of intense political repression in Morocco um, under King Hassan II. Um, and the archives from that time period are really just opening up in many cases. Um, it's still a contested topic in Morocco. There was a sort of truth and reconciliation commission that was established in the early 2000s um, after the death of King Hassan II and the ascension to power of King Mohammed VI. Um, so there was this truth and reconciliation process. Um, but there really hasn't, there's been some writing on the years of lead. Susan Slonovich, for example, has written about the years of lead and political prisoners in Morocco. But I think what's novel about my book is that there's a Jewish dimension to the years of lead, and it really showcases the kind of split within the Jewish community. Because for most Jews, Hassan II seemed like a great liberator, a great friend to the Jews. Um, he carried out sort of secret negotiations with Israel. Um, he was known among most Jews as being a not a liberatory figure, but certainly friendly to the Jews. Um, but the people that I write about, the Moroccan Jewish communists, were persecuted under the years of lead. Um, very notably, Abraham Sarfati, who was put into prison for about 18 years for his political beliefs, for speaking out against Moroccan colonization of Western Sahara. Um, so there the years of lead really show the stark divergence between the politically active Jews that I write about and the majority Jewish community. How did Jewish Marxists in Morocco view the Moroccan occupation of the Western Sahara? How did the Polisario Front <coughs> perceive Jews in Morocco, whether they be Zionist Jews, traditional Jews, or Marxist Jews? I don't know how the Polisario Front perceived Jews per se, so I haven't seen much evidence about um, the Polisario writing about Jews. But I can say that Jews were very split about Morocco's um, claim to Western Sahara. So someone like Simon Levy was very much in favor of uh, Morocco's claim to Western Sahara. And he participated in the Green March, which was this event in 1975, when huge numbers of Moroccans crossed into Western Sahara um, in a sort of peaceful march um, that accompanied other military activities at the same time. Um, so Simon Levy participated in the Green March and really um, sought to claim Western Sahara. Somebody like Abraham Sarfati, as I mentioned earlier, though, vociferously opposed um, the Moroccan annexation of Western Sahara or the conquest of Western Sahara. And he landed himself in prison for that. Um, I haven't seen really much writing from Edmond Ambran al-Male about um, Western Sahara or the Polisario Front, so I'm not really sure where he falls on that question. Um, but it's safe to say that the vast majority of Moroccan Jews were very nationalistic and very patriotic about Morocco's claim to Western Sahara. Jews. Um, Moroccan Jews living in the United States or in Israel, um, in France, all, many of them expressed their agreement with this policy of Morocco. Um, so people like Abraham Serfati were in the really distinct minority. Can you tell us about the international movement for the release 
of Abraham Serfati from prison. How is it yeah. similar or different from the international movement for the release of Mel Nelson Mandela from prison? Yeah, so Morocco during the years of lead, um, I mean, it's not as if these activities, this harsh period of repression went by secretly in Morocco. The world was very much aware of uh, the human rights abuses that were taking place in Morocco at the time. And Abraham Serfati, along with other very high-profile um, prisoners in Morocco, became the subject of human rights campaigns, a sort of coordinated international human rights campaign to liberate him from, um, from the different prisons in Morocco. And so these were different human rights organizations, Amnesty International, for example, um, was involved in his liberation. Um, there were a number of other more specific French political organizations. Um, the book features uh, illustrations from a few of these different organizations criti critiquing um, King Hassan II and the years of lead and seeking to liberate Abraham Serfati, including a pamphlet that overtly compares Abraham Serfati to Nelson Mandela, um, saying since the liberation of Nelson Mandela, Abraham Serfati is the longest serving political prisoner. Um, so even in the early 1990s, this comparison was being made. I mean, they were fighting in vastly different kinds of causes, um, but the idea of them being part of concerted international human rights campaigns is similar. You introduce us to Abraham Serfati. Can you tell us about his upbringing about his years, his formative years in life, and mm -hmm. some aspects of his biography? Yeah. So he comes from a Jewish family from Tangier, originally, in the north of Morocco. Um, and his family, like many families in the early part of the 20th century, migrated to Casablanca for work and political opportunities. Casablanca um, was really just being built up in the early um, 20th century. And it drew Jews and Muslims from across Morocco to all of these different work and employment opportunities. So Abraham Serfati's family fits into that framework. Um, I know he was a critic of Zionism from an early age. Um, and I think he he says somewhere, I think that he inherited that from his father, that his father was often getting in political arguments. Um, Serfati wanted to be involved in the fight against um, fascist Vichy forces um, in Morocco during the Second World War. Um, he worked on the docks in Casablanca after the Allied landings in Operation Torch in 1942 and befriended American soldiers. And he really locates his political formation during the Vichy years when Jews were harshly uh, persecuted against under Vichy anti-Semitic legislation. Jews were kicked out of school, kicked out of their employment. Um, in some cases, they were forced to physically move their home back to the historic Jewish area of a city. Um, so Serfati and many others cite the Vichy period as one of political galvanization for them. Um, Serfati's sister, Evelyn, for example, who was also very politically active, um, she was kicked out of school during the Vichy period, and that was a, a memory that he kept as well. And so he his, he cites his evolution in the Vichy period and 
the immediate aftermath of the Vichy period in the Second World War, but his political evolution continues on from there. For the extent of your knowledge, did Moroccan Jewish Marxists have any contexts, contacts with Israeli Marxists and communists, such as the Mapam Party or the Matzpen Party or the Rakah Party? Did they have any contact with the Israeli Mizrahi protest movements, such as the Black Panthers? Or were they separate from them? Did they have any communication with counterparts in Israel? Yeah, I was. I've been curious about that question for a long time myself. I haven't seen much evidence of um, interaction between Jewish members of the Moroccan Communist Party in its later iterations and Jewish communists or leftists in Israel. Um, but I will say, Abraham Serfati attended the Pan-African Festival in Algiers, and there he encountered an American Black Panther, so different from the Israeli Black Panthers, but there he encountered an American Black Panther um, and voiced his support for the American Black Panther movement. Um, I'm not sure to what degree uh, the people that I write about were really aware of leftist political organizing in um, in Israel after 1948, Palestine before then. Um, I haven't seen much evidence of it. Um, generally, they were very focused about Moroccan national issues, Moroccan domestic issues. Uh, that tended to be the the most the biggest focus. Who was Zahor Rehilil? Can you elaborate? Yeah, Zahor, she is the director of the Moroccan Jewish Museum in Casablanca. Um, she's still there to this day. Um, she has done a lot of fantastic work in making Jewish memories of Morocco more public. She brings in school groups to uh, Moroccan school groups into the museum as well as international visitors to the museum. Um, she very much keeps alive the vision of Moroccan Jewishness that Simon Levy um, held so dear starting in the 1990s when the museum was founded. So she really has continued in that role. Um, she herself is not Jewish, um, and that is remarkable to the extent there are lots of non-Jews in Morocco that are very involved in Jewish historical preservation. So she's one of a sort of coterie of people that are very passionate about the preservation of the Jewish past in Morocco and this vision of Moroccan Jewish patrimony that should be inherited among the generations. How did the influx of Spanish Civil War refugees impact Morocco, Moroccan Marxism, and Moroccan Jews? So this is a really interesting question that scholars don't fully know the answer to yet. Um, there, were, there was a significant wave of Spanish Republican refugees who fled Spain after the victory of Franco's forces in 1939 and wound up in North Africa, um, a large number of them in Morocco specifically. A lot of the people that I write about cite talking with Spaniards um, and Spanish political organizing in Morocco as, as very influential in their own political development. Um, there were a lot of Spanish leftists that worked in the docks of Casablanca, that worked in canning factories, car factories, all sorts of different industrial spaces in Morocco. 
So Abraham Serfati, for example, cited Span living in a, uh, a neighborhood that was heavily Spanish and seeing that sort of Spanish political activity as being very formative for his own political activity. Um, Simon Levy's wife, Encarnacion Levy, for example, came from a Spanish family of leftists. Her mother apparently sold horse meat on the docks of Casablanca, um, and she later converted to Judaism to marry Simon Levy. But she came from one of these Spanish uh, families, not a Republican refugee. Her family came earlier than the Spanish Civil War. But um, it, this is all to say that there was a very Spanish element to uh, Moroccan uh, leftist politics. Um, and so this is really, for anybody listening who's looking for a good dissertation topic um, or a good book topic, um, there's a lot more research to be done about uh, Spaniards in North Africa. There's some really excellent work. Um, Eric Calderwood wrote this fabulous book about Spain and Morocco. Isabel Rohr has written about um, Spain and Morocco and several other people have, but really a, a good volume on the Spanish Civil War refugees in North Africa remains to be seen. So that would be a fantastic project. Can you tell us about Andre Azulay? Can you tell us about his upbringing, biography, and legacy? So Andre Azulay is currently the most visible public Jewish figure in Morocco. He was advisor to King Hassan II, and he is still advisor to King uh, Mohammed VI currently in Morocco. He um, grew up not in the not very politically active family. He, in an interview with me a long time ago, stated that he briefly flirted with communism, that he briefly was interested in communism and saw Simon Levy speaking at an event, but he didn't um, become a sort of long-term member of the Communist Party. He cited an incident um, in which he was working at a newspaper and um, Nasser was visiting Morocco, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt was visiting Morocco, and this led to a spike of anti-Semitism in the country, uh, which resulted him going into sort of a self-imposed exile in Paris. So he lived in Paris for a long time and worked at a bank there before ultimately being invited back um, and working for King Hassan II and for the Moroccan administration. But he's behind a lot of Moroccan Jewish heritage projects in Morocco today, notably in Essaouira, where his family hails from um, on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. The extent of your knowledge, can you tell us about Jewish Marxists elsewhere in North Africa, such as Tunisia, Algeria, and or Egypt? Or can you tell us about Jewish Marxists in other Middle Eastern countries, such as Yemen or Iraq or Lebanon? To what degree were their lives and ideas similar or different to Moroccan Jewish Marxists? Yeah, so my book joins um, a sort of small collectivity of books that examine Jewish life in the left in the Middle East and North Africa. So Joel Bainan has written about um, Jews in Egyptian leftist politics. Orit Bashkin has written about Jews in Iraq in the Iraqi Communist Party. Uh, Lior Sternfeld has written about Jews in the Iranian Communist Party, known as the Tudeh Party. Um, Pierre-Jean de Luciani has written about Jews in the Algerian Communist Party. And Camilia Rahmoni has written about Jews in the Tunisian Communist Party. So there are these, these studies do exist. Um, 
there are some striking similarities, um, notably the interaction with anti-colonial politics in all of these spaces and a subset of Jews seeking to demonstrate their patriotism and their belonging to their country of origin, whether that's Iraq or Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia or wherever. This is a group of very, very patriotic Jews, which sometimes is surprising to people when they think about the Communist Party, right? They think that communism doesn't work with nationalism, that it has to be an internationalist enterprise. But for those Jews and non-Jews in the Middle East, North Africa, and other parts of the world that were fighting against colonization, communist politics really functioned as nationalist politics at the same time as internationalist politics. And it was the way for Jews to really participate in the national liberation movement um, of their home countries. Um, and these were Jews that rejected Zionism, that rejected other forms of Jewish nationalism, and saw the Communist Party really as their political home. Can you tell us about Sion Asidon? Can you describe his upbringing and his family? Can you tell us about his worldview and his activities? Yona Sidon is still a very active um, Jewish leftist in Morocco. Um, he is very much a critic of Israeli state policy. Um, he became politically active in the late 1960s and early 1970s. He was part of the sort of new left that was growing in Morocco at the time. And he... Um, he knew Abraham Serfati in prison. He himself was jailed for his own political activities um, in the 70s. He was a mathematician. Um, and and I, one of the interesting documents I saw was a group of math, international mathematicians that were calling for his release from prison. So we don't normally associate mathematicians with a lot of political activity. But there you go. There was this group of international mathematicians seeking the release of Siona Sidon. Um, and when I interviewed Sion Asidon, this was a long time ago now, um, but he, you know, I, I was going to be talking with him about politically sensitive events in his life and um, maybe, um, you know, his time under torture, under the years of lead, all of these sorts of things. And he, it surprised me that he wanted to meet in a restaurant uh, in such a public place. Um, so we met in this restaurant, but then as we were sitting in the restaurant, all of these different people were sort of coming up to him and thanking him more or less for his service to Morocco. Um, so he was this very well-known figure that people were thanking for his political activism. And it was very interesting to see this play out in, in such a public space. So he's still a very outspoken critic of Israel. Um and he's a, he's younger than most of the people that I wrote about in my book. So he was really galvanized sort of in the post-1967 political world rather than during the Vichy period. Speaking of which, how does your research recontextualize the history of Vichy France in relation to Morocco? Yeah, so there's a wonderful body of research that has been emerging over the last 10 years or so about Vichy France and its activities in North Africa and its colonies in North Africa. Um, there is an edited volume from Omar Boom and Sarah Stein that has a lot of different chapters looking at um, Jewish life and non-Jewish life for that matter um, under Vichy rule and beyond Vichy, even in Libya and other places in North Africa during the second the period of the Second World War. Um, 
My book contributes to that literature to the extent that the Moroccan Communist Party really, well, before the Second World War, before Vichy, it was not a national liberation party. It was very much a sort of universalist party, um, a human rights-seeking party, very much a, along the sort of French Republican model of what a political party should be like. Um, but it was not yet a national liberation party. After the Second World War is when it became a national liberation party. Um, and it's that there's this period of transformation under Vichy in which see, people like Serfati, Simon Levy, um, Edmond Amran and Malé, a lot of these Moroccan Jewish communists that I write about were really politically galvanized um, by the anti-Semitic measures taken by the Vichy period. And the Vichy period really swept the rug out from under a lot of North African Jews' feet. It wasn't as severe as in Algeria, where Jews lost their French citizenship. Um, Moroccan Jews were never whole-scale granted French citizenship as they were in Algeria. But it was still represented a stark betrayal for them politically. They had been taught French. They had been taught to identify with French ideals in many ways for a few generations at this point. And then to have that ripped from under them was very, very stark. Um, and so for many Jews, this raised the question, well, what is the future of Jewish life in Morocco? Is it really with France or is it something else? And I look at the Jews who saw something else, who saw fighting for the Moroccan um, national independence as the answer to their experiences under the Vichy period. But there are other, I mean, Albert Mimi, for example, of Tunisia, he wasn't a communist um, in the same vein. He was a leftist, though, um, but he writes very compellingly about his own, um, what's the word I'm looking for, disillusion with France uh, during the Vichy period. And a lot of us writing about North Africa during this time period talk about this sense of betrayal um, that France has committed. And this time period is really a critical galvanizing point for their political involvement. Can you tell us some more about Léon René Sultan? Can you tell us more about his biography, his worldview, his legacy, and some of the formative events in his life? He is a mystery. Um, I would love to know more about Leon René Sultan. He comes from Constantine in northern Algeria. Um, and through some other books that have come out recently, um, Josh Cole's book, for example, called Lethal Provocations about the 1934 violence in Constantine, um, he mentions another, I think an Adolf Sultan is his name, and I'm convinced that he's related to Léon René Sultan, because Sultan is not a super common um, surname, Jewish surname at least, in North Africa. Um, so I know that Léon René Sultan went to law school in Constantine, that he learned um, French law primarily, but also had studied Islamic law. Um, I know he married somebody from Constantine in the 1920s, and they moved to Casablanca, where he set up a law practice. And that's where he also came to be the founder of the Moroccan um, chapter of the Communist Party. It was originally a Moroccan outpost, basically, of the French Communist Party. And that's what he founded. My guess is that he was politicized while he was living in Algeria, that he was already um, a leftist before he arrived. In Morocco, but I don't know that for sure. Um, 
he, during the Vichy period, wrote numerous letters complaining about having been disbarred. He, alongside many other Jews, were disbarred, um, prevented from practicing law um, under Vichy, and he wrote to complain about that. He also agitated on behalf of Jews that were supposed to be exempt from anti-Semitic legislation, so people, um, Jews that had fought in the First World War for France, for example, were supposed to be exempt from um, Vichy legislation, so he would write to authorities protesting about that. Um, after um, the liberation, the Allied liberation of Operation Torch in 1942, he um, was in touch with Nelly Benatar, who Susan Miller has written about, um, coordinating the um, Moroccan Jewish efforts around Jewish refugees that were living in Morocco and other parts of North Africa. Um, and then Lionel Relais Sultan, he volunteers to fight with the Free French, and he ends up being injured on the battlefront and dying of his wounds once he gets back to Casablanca. Um, and he, he dies at a relatively young age of those wounds um, that he incurs while fighting for France. So um, he's an enigma to me in many ways. I think there's a very interesting history behind his extended family, most likely, and his extended family's involvement in politics. And it's something that I'm I'm still looking into all the time because I am so interested in this character. There are two photos that I know of that are available of Leon René Sultan. One of them features in my book and is from a pamphlet that was published after his death um celebrating the Moroccan Communist Party and the other you can see in a French newspaper of him in his military uniform. What were the repercussions of World War II and the Holocaust for Moroccan Jewry? How did these events impact the worldviews of the figures that you examine in this study? Yeah, so the Vichy period and the period of the Second World War were deeply influential. Um, politically for the people that I write about. Um, it really represented a betrayal for many of them, uh, the values that France supposedly stood for, um, you know, equality, brotherhood, fraternity, et cetera, um, and showed a much darker side of France. And for many of them, they questioned what their future would be in um, the French colonized Morocco, whether they should fight for national liberation, um, and stay in Morocco, whether they should embrace Zionism and leave Morocco, um, or whether they should see France as a sort of this Vichy France as an aberration and maintain their loyalty to what they thought of as the true France, quote unquote, and the, the France of the French Revolution and the ideals of the French Revolution. But it was a really formative period for a lot of the people that I write about. Um, politically. There is also um, this fascinating history of Jewish refugees from Europe that wound up in Morocco during the Second World War that Susan Miller has written about um, and others have written about as well. Um, so there was this, there was a period of interaction of European Jews, not necessarily leftists, but coming from all different political backgrounds, fleeing the war in Europe. Um, some of them were interned in labor camps, in Vichy-directed labor camps in North Africa. So not just in Morocco, but in Algeria and in Tunisia as well. Uh, well the Spanish Civil War uh, Republicans, refugees, were also interned in many of these labor camps for being leftists under the Vichy regime as well. 
Um, all of which is to say there was a lot of influence and exchange between the sides of the Mediterranean during the Second World War. And Moroccan Jews were very aware of the plight of European Jews um, and were in a position during the Second World War, in many cases, uh, helping and doing what they could to support the European Jewish refugee community in Morocco. Um, so there's a lot of um, evidence about that activity. Later, um, you know, there was some Jewish writings about the Holocaust, about um, what took place in Eastern Europe, genocide, etc. Um, and Moroccan Jews were very interested in that as well as part of a broader global Jewish community and um, informing Jewish solidarities internationally as well. Tell us more about Simon Levy. Can you go into any more detail about his family, his biography, his politics, and his legacy? So Simon Levy is the one who inspired this project in the first place. Um, he, when I met him, was directing the Moroccan Jewish Museum in Casablanca. And I met him back in 2009. Um, he had been a life, pretty much a lifelong political militant um, in the left. He had been part of the Moroccan Communist Party. He came from a sort of traditional Jewish family um, living in Casablanca. And he was always interested in Moroccan Jewish history and Moroccan Jewish languages in particular. He was um, very much educated about Hakitiya, this form of Judeo-Spanish spoken in northern Morocco. Um, and he also spoke Arabic and was very integrated in the sort of linguistic universe of Morocco. Um, he got involved in communist politics at a fairly young age, but he also cites the Vichy period as being uh, a formative one for him. He was living in Fez at the time um, before moving to Casablanca later in life. Uh, so he's originally from Fez. Um, he, he, in the 1950s, was very active in the fight for Morocco's national liberation from French and Spanish colonial rule. And after the achievement of that independence, he continued his politics to fight for what he saw as a better future independent Morocco, not necessarily the, the Morocco that was on the ground, but an idealized vision of Morocco through different leftist parties after the Moroccan Communist Party was banned. Um, it went through a few different names um, and cycled through periods of legality and illegality. Um, he became um, very involved in Jewish matters in the 1990s when he founded this Moroccan Jewish Museum. So sort of after he had finished his very political career, or at least his leftist political career, and he routinely would lead um, school groups in Morocco to the museum and talk to them about the Jewish past. Um, I saw him once lead the American ambassador to Morocco on a tour of the Jewish Museum. Um, so he was very involved in these international efforts to to make this point of Moroccan Jewish inextricable history. And um, he even had a word for it, Tayush, or sort of living together, um, living togetherness. And he had, he was interviewed for a Moroccan documentary on the subject a while ago as well. What were the ramifications of Operation Torch for Moroccan domestic politics? and for Moroccan Jews. So Operation Torch were the Allied landings in North Africa in the fall of 1942. Um, this spelled 
the hopes for liberation for Jews across North Africa. Um, so the landings took place in Morocco and in Algeria. And Jews were very excited at the prospect of having the anti-Semitic Vichy legislation be removed for Jews being able to lead um, you know, full lives again, um, especially in Algeria. There was a lot of lobbying to have their citizenship returned. It took a very long time for that citizenship to be reinstated. It was, in fact, abrogated again before being reinstated. Um, so it was a little bit of a longer road um, to reestablishment of Jewish rights than, than many Jews anticipated after Operation Torch. Um, but nonetheless, eventually they did get them. Operation Torch was pivotal also in that it increased the visibility of the United States in North Africa. Um, that a lot that France had been demonstrated to be weak, um, first by falling to the Germans and the creation of the Vichy regime, and then secondarily by falling to the Allied forces under United States and British control. And so a lot of national liberation parties in North Africa took heart from that and saw maybe the United States as a potential ally in seeking independence from French and Spanish colonial rule. Um, and the United States was very much seen as a potential liberator for those national independence movements as well. Who was Encarnacion Levy? Mm. Can you elaborate? Encarnacion Levy was Simone Levy's wife. Um, the name, as you might guess, is Spanish. Um, she came from a Spanish family. She told me when I interviewed her about this that her family had been seeking to go to the Americas. They came from a very, they were very poor. Um, they were seeking to go to the Americas, but they accidentally got on the wrong boat and ended up in Algeria. That's what she said anyway. <laughs> um, so her family was first in Algeria before arriving in Morocco. Encarnacion told me that her mother sold horse meat on the docks of Casablanca and was very um, politically involved in the left among the Spanish leftists of Casablanca at the time. And I think that's how she met Simone Levy was through that involvement in the left. And she then converted to Judaism um, in order to marry Simone Levy. And she always claimed that she herself wasn't very politically active. Um, which wasn't necessarily true. She told me about times when she and Evelyn Serfati would put up um, communist bulletins, for example, or distribute communist propaganda around Casablanca or among the Jewish community in Casablanca. But she didn't really think of herself as a political militant, um, although her actions kind of speak otherwise. And she was very much involved through at least her husband's work in the Moroccan Communist Party. Um, there was an incident when Simone Levy was involved in this massive uprising in Casablanca and was taken by the police for about eight days, tortured before being delivered on his doorstep. And um, the Communist Party paid for him to go with his family. I think it was to Hungary, um, trying to remember. I think it was to Hungary for a period of time and touring communist um, things in Hungary, and Encarnacion went along with that as well, along, along with their two sons. Um, so Encarnacion was very much involved, and I could not have written this book without her. She gave me access to her husband's personal papers and to his personal library. So I spent about two months in Encarnacion Levy's apartment, 
and where she extremely generously gave me access to all of these materials. Um, she unfortunately passed away before the book was published. Um, same with Simone Libby, same with many of the figures that I write about. Um, but she was deeply influential in the process, and I'm forever grateful to her. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Can you elaborate on the relationship between Moroccan Jews and King Hassan II? What were the dynamics of this relationship like during his time in power? So Hassan II has a complicated legacy. Um, around Morocco still, you can see photos of him up in schoolrooms and different spaces, even though the current King Mohammed VI has been in power since 1999. Um, so Hassan II is largely viewed favorably by Moroccan Jews um, because of his I wouldn't say friendly stance to Israel exactly, but his um, more open stance toward Israel uh, relative to other leaders in the region in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, he is known for trying to assure um, the legacy of Moroccan Jews and the continuity of Moroccan Jews. And that's why so many Moroccan Jews around the world supported um, his initiative to claim Western Sahara during the Green March um, because they saw themselves being patriotic and loyal to the king, Hassan II. Um, but the people that I write about, especially Abraham Serfati, fell on the wrong side of Hassan II's politics um, and fell on the side of the years of lead and brutal repression and torture. Um, same with Simon Levy for a short period of time. So the people that I write about really fell on a different political wavelength from Hassan II. Um, Hassan II was the subject of two assassination attempts. Um, he survived both kind of miraculously. Um, he was not a very popular figure among the left, to be sure. Um, he was viewed as deeply repressive of any political opposition. And he was very politically oppressive to any opposition. But Jews in particular um, think, historically thought very fondly of him as a kind of, not a savior figure exactly, but someone who is friendly to Jewish interests, both in Morocco and internationally. Can you tell us some more about Edmund Amran el-Maleh? Can you tell us more about his worldview, his activities, about his upbringing, his family, and key events in his life. Edmond Amran al-Maleh is one of Morocco's most prolific writers, um, although he didn't start writing until the age of 62 while in self-imposed exile in France. Um, he grew up, um, well, he was born in Safi, um, but his family hailed historically from the town of Essaouira on the Atlantic coast. Um, and his political activity largely took place in Casablanca, where he worked as a teacher. Well, he was also very politically active. Um, he left Morocco in the early 1960s um, because of a growing dissatisfaction with leftist politics, um, with his role in leftist politics. Um, 
and with the future that Morocco seemed to be turning toward. He didn't like the direction of the country, so he left for France. And it was from France that he really wrote intensively about Moroccan Jewish past in a fictive way, but in a very evocative way, nonetheless. Um, and most of his work is semi-autobiographical, um, talking about Jewish involvement in politics um, in all of these different ways. So one of my dreams is to translate Edmond Amran El Malay's work. That's another great book project for somebody um, his novels have not been translated. They're originally in French. His novels have not been translated into English. Um, they would make for wonderful sources for students and just the casual reader to to be acquainted with. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to do that translating, but somebody should because um, they're fantastic works. What does the image on your book's front cover mean and signify? Can you interpret it for us? Yeah. So the image on the cover is of the five-pointed Moroccan star uh, with a hammer and sickle for the Communist Party. And this was taken, the image for the book cover was taken from an archival document. I believe it was from Meknes, um, a police surveillance report from Meknes, um, uh, indicating that this was the emblem of the Moroccan Communist Party. And this would be the sort of symbol that was held up at Moroccan Communist events. Um, so that's its immediate signification, that it, it represents the Moroccan Communist Party. Um, but it also is very evocative of another book cover. Um, I'm blinking on his name, but he wrote um, about Judeo-Bolshevism. Paul Hannebrink, he wrote about Judeo-Bolshevism in Central and Eastern Europe. And on the, his book cover, he has a sickle and hammer and a Jewish star, and that's meant to evoke the... Um, the anti-Semitic trope of Jews being behind the Bolshevik revolution in some ways. So there's a lot of resonance with that cover as well. Um, Judeo-Bolshevism and threats or allegations of Judeo-Bolshevism also existed in Morocco, um, especially in the 1930s from the European settler population that Jews were somehow behind the Bolshevik revolution, that Jews were behind leftist parties all over the world. Um, but the the most immediate meaning of the sign comes from a surveillance document from Meknes in the 1930s. How did the various Arab-Israeli wars impact Jewish-Muslim relations in Morocco? How did the Moroccan Jewish Marxists that you examine in this study respond? What are the common themes in their responses to the various Arab-Israeli wars during their time? And can you comment on specific responses to particular wars, both with regard to the similarities and overlaps and the general themes in the Israeli-Arab conflict, but also perhaps with nuances of uniqueness of one war vis-a-vis -vis another? Mm -hmm. So the people that I write about, these Moroccan Jewish communists, were very much anti-Zionist. Um, they were deeply opposed to any effort that would separate Moroccan Jews from their homeland. Um, they saw, I mean, with degrees of difference, they saw Zionism as one of the destructive forces in Moroccan Jewish history, French colonialism being another major destructive force as they saw it. Um, Abraham Serpati, in an issue of Soufla and Fas, which was a literary and political journal he helped co-found from the far left, wrote about Zionism as a, quote, global ghetto, 
that had trapped Jews um, in of sort of historically novel proportions, I think he's, is what he said. Um, so he was deeply anti-Zionist for those reasons. Um, at each moment of these wars between Israel and other Arab states, whether it's 1948, um, 1956, 1967, or the Yom Kippur War, we see a spike of anti-Semitic violence in uh, Morocco, um, in the Arab world more broadly as well, but in Morocco as well specifically, we see spikes of anti-Semitic violence, um, conflations of Zion support for Zionism and Jewishness, right? The assumption that all Jews must be Zionist or support Israeli state policies, um, hence there were boycotts against Jewish businesses, um, a lot of sort of activity against anything linked to Zionism in Morocco. Um, in the 1967 war, for example, the king issued um, a declaration reiterating that Moroccan Jews were his loyal subjects, um, that they shouldn't embrace Zionism um, as full citizens. They, he also encouraged Muslims to remain calm and not be stirred up by anti-Zionist propaganda. Um, and not to take this out on Jews, uh, some of the Jewish figures I write about issued a declaration that they circulated um, pretty widely, but tried to get Jewish signatories on saying that they rejected essentially Israeli aggression and Moroccan Jews did not, um, they were not synonymous with the activities of Israel trying to really distinguish from themselves from what took place in Israel and those wars. But at each one of those wars, the migration kind of peaked once again. So in the 1950s and 1960s, um, we see these massive waves of Moroccan Jewish migration, largely to Israel, but also to France and to Canada and to other parts of the world. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about what your current research is on? Yeah, so I really got interested in anti-fascism um, in the 1930s in North Africa. Um, so that's the subject of the first book chapter uh, for the Sultan's Communist is um, communist ac activism fighting against fascism largely. Um, but there's a whole universe of political activism in the 1930s in North Africa that is super interesting and hasn't really been written about. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research on the International League Against Anti-Semitism. Omar Boom wrote an, a wonderful article about this organization, the LICA, as it's known in French, um, but its efforts um, were very widespread. It drew a large number of Jews and non-Jews to its fold to combat fascism in the 1930s. So I've been looking into that um, and so broadly speaking, the, the next book project is about Muslim and Jewish anti-fascism in interwar North Africa, but I'm at the very beginning of the research. So, so far, I've only been going through the Lika archives, but a lot more remains to be done. That sounds amazing. Uh, I absolutely wish you the best of luck in that research. It's, it sounds so important. Thank you so much. As we end today, I wanted to convey my heartfelt gratitude to you for such erudite and generous answers throughout the course of our dialogue, and to convey how humbled and honored I have been for your precious time in the course of this conversation. Well, thank you so much for the fabulous questions and for engaging with my work. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my blessing to be in dialogue with Alma Rachel Heckman. She is the Neufeld Levin Chair of Holocaust Studies and Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We have been discussing her newly published book, The Sultan's Communists, Moroccan Jews and the Politics of Belonging, published in Stanford, California by Stanford University Press, 2021. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Alma, thank you. Thank you.